This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on the Gospel of Mark called Jesus in Action. Do you still not understand? Man, if this story feels familiar, the feeding of the 4,000, it's because we just had the feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 6, which we talked about only a few weeks ago. You might be having a feeling of what the French call déjà vu. This is really familiar. We've been through this whole situation, and here we are again, and these poor, sorry disciples still do not understand. There's a story about the the British preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a medical doctor turned preacher back in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. And he would travel around the UK preaching in different churches. And he had one very devoted and somewhat annoying fan who would follow him from church to church to listen to his messages. And one morning, as the doctor was shaking his hand yet again outside the door, the man leaned forward and asked him, Doctor, is this the only message you have? Don't you have another one you're going to preach? And Martin Lloyd-Jones looked at, him, looked at him under his bushy eyebrows and said, yes, but when are you going to put this one into practice? And in a sense, Jesus is preaching the same message over and over and over again to us. Do you still not understand? And he's willing to beat this message into our heads continuously so that we might be men and women of true faith. And in fact, the story of the feeding of the 5,000 in Mark chapter 6 is certainly not the first miraculous feeding in the scriptures. This is something that comes up again and again and again. And it should remind us of the people of Israel in the wilderness. They had left the land of Egypt. They had been in this desperate situation, crammed against the Red Sea, the chariots of Pharaoh hurtling towards them, and they're screaming in terror, and then Moses stretches out his staff. The waters open, and the people pass through. But they're... Remarkably, not a people filled with faith and trust in their covenant God. They are people filled with doubt and suspicion, and they're wandering around the wilderness. But God, in his grace, feeds them with bread from heaven, doesn't he? Manna drops from the skies in the middle of the desert for the people of Israel. And if you read through this story, there are all these themes that come up again and again. Thousands of people in the wilderness. They're on the far side of the Jordan. There's this divine provision of bread. We have this unbelieving generation testing God, and we have hearts in danger of hardening. And there are major Old Testament themes that are surfacing here in the Gospel of Mark. And if you are someone who loves the Old Testament, it's here where you're getting your payoff and you're starting to see some things come together. I just want to have three simple points this afternoon as we follow our text. The first one is simply this, that Jesus feeds the hungry crowd. Here, this huge crowd has gathered, and Mark tells us it's 4,000 people. In the parallel account in Matthew, he makes it clear it's 4,000 men plus women and children. So maybe 12,000 or 15,000 people. Jesus has, has led them to some desolate place far away from any town or village or farm, and they're there listening to Jesus' teaching. They're with Jesus for three days out in the middle of nowhere with Jesus. This is no ordinary fickle crowd. They seem to be quite devoted to Jesus. And on the third day, Jesus begins to have compassion on these people. He's worried and he's concerned about the fact that they've had nothing to eat. They are hungry for the word of God. 
that Jesus is giving them, but their bodies have needs too. And Jesus is concerned that we're about to have a humanitarian crisis on our hands. As 10,000 people start collapsing in the middle of the desert, far away from any medical help or civilization itself. Now we might wonder, wait, after three days, is this not a bit of poor planning on Jesus' part? A lack of administrative giftings. He's so excited about preaching the kingdom that he has forgotten to organize some kind of food delivery system. And why on earth has Jesus not stayed in the town, in the marketplace, somewhere convenient, but he's taken the trouble to lead this crowd far away from civilization out in the wilderness? What on earth is Jesus up to? Jesus does everything on purpose. This is no accident that Jesus has to pull a miracle out of his back pocket to get himself out of trouble. This is all part of his plan, just like it was part of God's plan to lead Israel through the wilderness first before entering into the promised land. It's God's holy geography. Listen to Deuteronomy 8, chapter 3. This is Moses' final sermon to the people before he dies and they go into the promised land. He says, The Lord humbled you, causing you to hunger and feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Does that verse sound familiar to you at all? Jesus in the desert being tempted and tested by Satan, quotes that very verse from Deuteronomy back to the evil one. Here are the people that Jesus has brought into the wilderness, causing them to hunger so that he can feed them with manna. And the lesson of the Exodus and the book of Numbers and the wanderings in the wilderness, just like it is the lesson here in our passage and in our lives, is this, that the people of God are always totally dependent on his miraculous provision. God's people are always totally dependent on his miraculous provision. And the people of Israel were just as dependent on God when they entered into the land of milk and honey as they were out in the barren wilderness. The desert only reveals what has always been true, that we actually have no resources of our own to keep us alive even for a few days, but that it all must come from the gracious and powerful hand of God. And so the desert reveals what is always true about God, but it also reveals what is true about us. Because God led Israel into the desert to test their character, to bring out what was always in them. That's what happens in times of trial and temptation, isn't it? Who we really are comes to the surface. The Chinese, I'm told, have a proverb that says that people are like tea bags, and it's only in hot water that their true color comes out. Isn't that the case? When we're, we can be praising God and dancing and worshiping and singing when everything is going well, but when we're in the desert and there's nothing around and our poor little tummies are starting to rumble... Then the grumbling and complaining and real lack of trust comes out, does it not? And our character is revealed. So the desert and hunger in the desert is a time of testing from God. Will the people grumble and complain or will they trust that God is faithful and that he is strong and that he's wise and he knows what he is doing? Well, the crowd doesn't seem to have any problem with this, in fact, remarkably. It's not the crowd who raises doubts 
It's the disciples, these 12 men who Jesus had called to follow him. They're the ones who raise this question when Jesus talks about feeding the crowds. And they ask, well, Jesus, where on earth in this remote place are we going to get food for these people? In Mark chapter 6, in the feeding of the 5,000, the issue was money. Here they are so far from civilization, money is not even an issue yet. We don't have a store to go to. We're just so desolate and remote. Where in this remote place are we going to get food? You see, in the desert, there is no possibility of natural provision. There are no lush orchards nearby where you can wander through and grab some fruit. There are no vineyards. There are no fields of wheat and corn that you can stroll through and get some ears to nibble on. There's no cities. There's no villages. There's no shops. There's no delivery. There's no cell phone service. There's no possibility of any natural provision. Just some dry rocks and scrubby little bushes where even a goat could barely browse. This is where the people have been brought by Jesus. Here's where the disciples have been brought. And isn't it remarkable that not very long after the feeding of the 5,000, that the disciples themselves had had the privilege of participating in, helping Jesus distribute the bread and the fish, here they are confronted with almost the identical situation. And the previous feeding seems to have made no impression whatsoever on their minds. Surely something should have jog their memories, like, wait a second, we, we wrote this down somewhere. This is in the manual that we recorded. This happened before. It's made no impression on them, and all they can think about are the impossibilities and the lack of resources. But Jesus is gracious. He has compassion on the crowds. He's not stymied by the questions about the disciples. He gets them to gather the meager resources, the seven loaves and a few fish, so that he can feed the crowd. And it is a good lesson, isn't it, that Jesus, despite the tiny means, these few seven loaves that are obviously ridiculously insufficient to feed the crowds, Jesus still uses them. He still uses the humble means of grace to work his miracle through. He's not leaping over it. He's using what is ordinary and physical and seemingly insufficient. He chooses to work through that, which is really good news for all of us who want to minister to the lost in this world, isn't it? And Jesus makes sure that the crowd is fed. He sits them down on the ground. There's no green grass here like there was in Mark chapter 6. He breaks the bread, he gives thanks, and he distributes the bread. Does that pattern sound familiar? Breaking the bread, giving thanks, distributing? It's a little foreshadowing of the Last Supper, isn't it? The Eucharist. This, this provision of grace. And it is wonderful, despite the slowness and hard-heartedness of the disciples, that they're still granted the privilege of distribution. Jesus involves these 12 men in getting the joy of helping him to hand out this miraculously multiplying bread and fish to the multitude on the ground. They're not responsible for providing the miracle, thank God, but they are invited to participate in distributing the miracle. And there's Peter and Philip and James and John, and as they're breaking off pieces of the loaf that they have and handing it out, somehow the loaf never grows smaller. And you can imagine them flushed with excitement and exhilaration as they get to participate in this miracle. They're not just witnesses. They are deep into this miracle 
alongside of Jesus, participating in the joy of ministering God's grace. And isn't that what ministry and mission is all about? For all of us here, every single person here who's following Jesus, he invites to have the joy of seeing the bread and the loaves multiplied. Jesus didn't need the disciples. Surely, if he could multiply the loaves, the distribution system, the logistics would not have been a problem for him. But he chooses to use these humble, ordinary, slow, thick-headed people to minister the gospel to those around them. And what good news for all of us, that Jesus, in his grace, despite our own slowness and hard-heartedness, we have the privilege of seeing the grace of God at work in the lives of those that we get to share the gospel with and encourage with the love of God. What grace from Jesus. And here's this crowd. Surely they must have been absolutely ravenous after three days out in the wilderness. And they eat and eat and eat and eat until they can eat no more. They're filled up full. They've eaten and they are satisfied. There are still seven baskets left over. Such is the plenty of God that even at our most sharp set, our most ravenous, our most hungry, we never scrape the bottom of God's barrel. Charles Spurgeon says on this that the power to eat was exhausted, but not Christ's power to feed. The power to eat was exhausted. It ran out hungry as they were. They eventually came to the end of their need, but Jesus' grace was nowhere near its end. And we are all very hungry and needy people, aren't we? We have no idea, really, of our own need until we begin to consume the grace of God. And the good news is the kitchen is never going to shut down early. The grace of God is never going to run out. It is always going to be there for you, no matter how ravenous you are. Such is the bounty of God. And they've been with Jesus for three days. They've eaten. They're satisfied. Their tummies are bulging. And Jesus sends them away. He gets into the boat with his disciples, and he heads off to the other side of the lake to Dalmanutha, which is probably a small harbor not far from his home base of Capernaum. So Jesus has fed the hungry crowd, but then there's a bit of a shift in scene as he goes on to rebuff these insincere Pharisees, these Jewish religious leaders who show up when Jesus lands, and they are there to question Jesus. And these are not the sincere questions of the genuine seeker after truth. Oh, no, no, no. They are there not to listen, but to argue and to debate and to squeeze Jesus into a corner. As Eugene Peterson paraphrases this in the message, they were badgering Jesus to prove himself. Come on, Jesus, show your credentials. Prove yourself. We do not believe who you are. And Mark says that they were there to test him, to test him. And that word test is practically the theme of the book of Numbers, a depressing book in the Bible, if there ever was one, as the people of Israel put the Lord their God to the test again and again and again. And the spirit of testing is about nagging and whining. It's about complaint and suspicion. And it is about covenant disloyalty and rebellion, challenging and questioning and doubting the God who had rescued and provided for the people again and again and again. And no miracle seemed to be enough for the people of Israel, did it? Because they had hard and suspicious hearts. And it was an issue of willful perversity. 
Jesus has already been tested in the wilderness in Mark. Mark chapter 1, it's Satan who shows up to test Jesus in the wilderness. And here these Pharisees, these holy religious people, are actually taking the side of Satan and join with him in testing Jesus. And they demand a sign from heaven. All the miracles that they've witnessed and heard about, all these healings of the blind and the deaf and the paralyzed, the casting out of demons and even the raising from the dead, seem to count for nothing to them. They want a clear, undeniable sign from heaven. Letters of fire across the sky, perhaps. Jesus is the Messiah. The problem is there is no such thing as an undeniable sign because it can always be denied by those who refuse to believe. And Jesus' reaction is to sigh deeply, to groan in frustration and dismay. He's being pushed to his limits, and he is extremely angry with these Pharisees, and he asks, why does this generation ask for a sign? This generation is the evil and adulterous generation of the book of Numbers, the people who for 40 years had put God to the test. Why do they demand a sign? And the NIV translates what Jesus says after that is, truly I say to you, no sign will be given to it. And that's what's really happening in the Greek is this. It literally says, truly I say to you, if a sign is given to it, dot, 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 it's an unfinished sentence. And what a Jew would have understood, how Jesus would have completed that sentence, would have been as an oath, calling a curse on himself. If a sign is given to this generation, may God strike me down. There is no way on earth you guys are getting a sign. I hope God kills me first before you guys get a sign from heaven. Because these are not sincere seekers. These are evil, doubting, testing people. In Exodus 17, the spirit of testing is described as asking this question of God in the wilderness. Is the Lord among us or not? Is the Lord among us or not? And isn't that the question the Pharisees are asking? Is the Lord among us or not? They fail to see, they refuse to see, that Jesus of Nazareth is himself the sign from heaven, the very word of God. And no greater sign can possibly be given than God's own son come in the flesh. But they refuse to accept him, and they don't want to obey. Why is Jesus so angry with them? Why is he so furious, bringing down this oath on himself rather than meet their demand? It's because he knows that their questions, their request for a sign, is really concealing a refusal to repent. They don't want to repent. And all their religion, all their law, all their detailed regulations of holiness are all a complicated evasion. They want to protect themselves in religion from a true encounter with the living and holy God of Israel. They don't want to have to deal with God himself, and so they protect themselves with these laws and with these questions. The question they are asking is not the real issue in their hearts. This week, Michelle and I were watching on YouTube this uh, British TV show about a British expat couple who were looking into moving to Cyprus. And the theme of the show was that the host 
takes them around to these different properties, up in the mountains, down by the beach, in town, and they sort of review them and talk about them and see if they would fit their, their needs and their dreams. And they had a lot of niggling questions and about the way the kitchen was laid out and how, how high the cupboards were in the bedroom and so forth. And on a private aside to the camera, the host observed, I don't think their problem is really with these properties. They're just afraid to move, and they're raising these objections because they have some fear in their hearts. And that was a pretty wise observation, wasn't it? And isn't that the case so often with us coming to Jesus? The questions that we raise out loud, our desire for some kind of confirming sign or some kind of definitive proof that will answer our questions once and for all, those presenting questions are not always the real deep questions of our hearts. I have a friend named Adam who's a very, in Canada, he's a very a bold evangelist. And he goes on to university campuses and tries to reach people for Christ. And he sat down with this guy and he was giving him many proofs that Jesus had risen from the dead and demonstrating the truth of the gospel to him and appealing for him to believe in Jesus. And the guy said, well, that's all very interesting, Adam, but to be honest, I just really like looking at porn. And I know that if I became a Christian, I couldn't look at porn anymore. So I'm sorry, I can't, I can't follow this. And Adam said, well, thank you for your honesty. Isn't that refreshing, at least, that he was willing to admit, this is the deep heart issue I have. I just really like my sin, and I know that if I come to Jesus, he's going to have some demands on my life. And I'm going to have to surrender control over myself and my own destiny and my own purpose. And doesn't that make us all deeply uncomfortable, whatever our issue is? So we can start coming to Jesus because he sounds kind of interesting and possibly fulfilling, but then we start feeling the finger of his demands on us, and we start getting cold feet and wanting to back off, don't we? G.K. Chesterton said that it's not that Christianity has been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and never tried. It's not that it's been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and never tried. And when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, many of the crowds start to melt away and go off to different things because Jesus has this claim of lordship over us. See, they are there testing Jesus, but he is there to test them. He is the one who is the judge. They think that they are weighing and assessing Jesus, but they are being weighed and they are being assessed by him. And Grant Osborne says that God never surrenders to our demands. We yield to his. And so if you're here this afternoon, you're curious about Christianity, you're wondering about Jesus, we hope you feel very welcome. And we are happy to give honest answers to honest questions that you might have. But God is putting his finger on you, and he has a claim on you that might start to make you feel uncomfortable as you get closer and closer to putting your faith in Jesus. And we have to ask you, if you're interested in Christianity, is it just because you're playing some intellectual games or because you're on some kind of cool spiritual quest? Jesus is not interested in your games and he's not interested in your quest, but he loves you and he wants to change your life by being your Lord and your King. Jesus has no time for bad hearts insincere hearts that are just wasting everybody's time. He is all the time in the world for good hearts, for true hearts that are hungry after God.
So if you hunger and thirst after God and you want to know him, God is very ready to answer your prayers and he is very ready to reveal himself to you. But ask yourself, am I seeking him in truth or am I just playing games? So Jesus is angry with these Pharisees. He groans deeply in his spirit. He turns his back on them and he leaves them. It's like a leaving and a rejection of judgment. And he gets back into the boat with his disciples. And somehow in the hurry, one of the disciples forgets the seven baskets of bread. They had all these leftovers that they were looking forward to nourishing them for days and days, perhaps selling them to raise some money for their their little collection. And some forgetful disciple has left those seven big baskets on the side of a mountain somewhere. And they are very stressed out about this. And they start talking among themselves, oh my goodness, we, we only have one loaf of bread among the 13 of us. The seven baskets we were depending on are all gone. And it raises, it seems to raise some, some worries and doubts in their mind about their provision. Isn't that kind of funny? First, these guys had experienced five loaves being multiplied for 5,000 people, seven loaves being multiplied for 4,000 people, and now they're stressing about, out about one loaf for a mere 13 people. Right after this miracle happens, for the third time, they're having doubts and worries. They're just absolutely no better for all these miracles that Jesus does. And Jesus has a warning for them. That's my third point. Jesus warns the forgetful disciples. And as they row off from the shore, Jesus, who is still steaming at the Pharisees, cautions these disciples very seriously. Watch out, guys. Watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. And this leaven or this yeast, Jesus sees as kind of a fermenting poison. In the ancient world, they didn't use yeast like we, did, like we do today. They would take a piece of raw dough from the last batch, and they would just let it sit for a week. They'd pour some juices on it and stuff and let the natural process happen, and then they'd stick it in the next batch a week later and bake it. And it wasn't, there were definitely some health risks with that method of you know, getting your fungus growing. And it, it, happened more, it happened often that you would get a bad loaf of bread and the, the bad fungus, the poison from your little lump of leaven that you'd saved has now spread throughout the whole batch. And Jesus is concerned for his disciples that the hypocrisy and insincerity of the Pharisees here and Herod, remember Herod asking John the Baptist these questions, he enjoyed talking to him but had no real intent to repent from his sins, that falseness and deceit, Jesus is worried that that sort of resistance to Jesus is going to start affecting the disciples. And he's beginning to see some disturbing signs among them already. And he warns them very seriously, guys, watch out for this. Be on your guard. It's not just a danger from the outside. The very inner circle of Jesus is in danger of being spoiled by this spiritual fungus of doubt and cynicism and resistance. And man, these poor disciples, they have no idea what Jesus is talking about, do they? And they start whispering among themselves, oh, he's saying this because we we have no bread. It seems like they're concerned that Jesus is going to be angry at them for having forgotten the bread on the shore. And the word leaven just triggers these thoughts about the loaf of bread, the only loaf of bread they have with them. And these poor guys are just woodenly literal. They can only see the things of the body and the flesh and the physical realm. And they just have no conception at all about the spiritual truths that Jesus has been trying to hammer into them for for weeks and months. 
And Jesus then unleashes this barrage of questions, nine questions from Jesus that he blasts at his disciples sitting there in the stern of the boat. Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? These disciples have the capacity to perceive. They've been there with Jesus. They've seen and they've heard, but they're refusing to use the capacities that God has given them. They've seen miracle after miracle, and it has not made a dent in their hard hearts. And isn't there an important lesson there about the limits of signs and wonders? We would love to see God work in miraculous ways for the same reason Jesus did, out of compassion for those who are hurting. But signs and wonders by themselves do not change people's hearts. There is no miracle so great that it cannot be denied. And as the poet once said, a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. Someone convinced against their will is going to be of the same opinion as they always were. You just have to go on Facebook and follow some political conversations to see how true that is. Signs and wonders by themselves cannot change people's hearts. The disciples need something deeper than just being the witnesses or even the participants in these great works that Jesus is doing. The problem is they have hard hearts. It's not just that their heads are full of bone. Their hearts are full of stone. And it's a spiritual issue related to their wills and their desires. Not about their experiences and their circumstances. Their hearts are hard. And the miracles that Jesus is doing seem to have failed to penetrate into their hearts. And in the order of his questions, Jesus seems to be suggesting that this hardness of heart, this culpable resistance to what Jesus is doing, is really due to their failure to remember. Guys, do you not remember? Don't you remember? And Jesus starts quizzing them about what happened at these two miracles. These disciples have forgotten much more than a few baskets of scraps on the mountainside. They, the whole meaning and purpose of what Jesus is doing has just slipped right out of their minds. See, they can recite the number of baskets. They remember the number of baskets. They know the mathematics, but not the meaning of what Jesus has done. They've seen the physical reality, but they have failed to perceive God at work in what Jesus is doing. They had failed to truly remember, to really take Jesus' work to heart. And that word remember is also a very significant Old Testament word because it doesn't just refer to, you know, a cerebral act in our brains. It's about an act of covenant faithfulness, bringing to mind again and again the mighty acts of God on our behalf. And the people of Israel, with all their feasts and all their festivals, Those were all designed multiple times a year to bring before them the fact that the God that they were following was the God who had brought them out of the land of Egypt into the land of Canaan. They were to remind themselves and each other of the mighty acts of God. And as they did so, those memories became living realities among them. Just as when we regularly, every three weeks, sit down and partake of Holy Communion together, and we take the bread and we take the cup, We are reminding ourselves of what Jesus has done for us in his death and resurrection. 
It's not just a mental act of memory. It's us participating now in that past event as a literal and living reality. And these disciples had forgotten to remind themselves and each other what God had done for them in Jesus. Just as we so often forget to remind ourselves of the mighty acts of God in Christ and in the Spirit. What happened at Calvary and on Easter morning and at Pentecost and how Jesus has opened our own hearts and minds by the Holy Spirit when we came to him and the many, many, many acts of faithfulness down over the years where God has proven himself again and again and again as our faithful covenant God. When Israel passed over the Jordan to the land of Israel, they were called to raise these rocks in the middle of the Jordan River. They're Ebenezer. And it was to be a physical reminder to them, every time they saw that, that God has brought you into this land. They needed those physical reminders, as do we. So if you're journaling, you're doing a good thing, recording how God has answered your prayers and has met you day to day to day. But to get the full benefit, you need to go back and read those journals, don't you? And when you're feeling low and doubting and despairing and there's yet some new fearful situation and you only have one loaf in your hand, go back to those journals and remind yourself, God has been with me in circumstance after circumstance after circumstance. And surely this God who has come through me time and time again, who has fed the 4,000 and the 5,000, will not to forget, forget to feed me today. Memory grows faith, and faith grows understanding. Now, what's remarkable about this feeding of the, of the 4,000, as Mark records it, if you flip forward the story immediately before this one, that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, was Jesus healing the deaf man. And the healing immediately after this story is Jesus healing the blind man. Do you think perhaps there's some significance to what Mark is doing here? Here are these disciples that Jesus is telling them, you've got eyes, but you can't see. And you have ears, but you cannot perceive. And he's putting that right in the middle of these two stories of the healing of the deaf and the healing of the blind. These disciples think that they are just witnesses or even helpers with Jesus and his miracles. What Jesus wants them to learn is that they themselves need a miracle from Jesus. They need the eyes of their hearts to be opened, and they need the ears of their minds to be opened up so that they can hear and see from God themselves. The good thing is, that Jesus is not making statements or judgments here. He's asking questions. And when Jesus is asking questions of us, there is hope, isn't there? He's asking these nine repeated questions, one after another, to provoke them to a sense of their own need of Jesus intervening in their lives. And his final question, do you still not understand? Rebuke as it is also offers some hope, doesn't it? Do you still not understand? Suggests understanding may yet be coming. Later on in this very chapter, in Mark chapter 8, we get this incredible confession of Peter that Jesus is the Christ. There is a miracle that Jesus is going to do for his disciples, 
and that he wants to do for all of us here today. We would love to see the deaf and the blind being given sight and the lame jumping for joy and all those miracles. But most of all, we need the greater permanent miracle of God opening up people's hearts and ears and minds and eyes and giving life to the dead. We need the Holy Spirit to give us ears that will truly hear the voice of God in Jesus' voice. We need the Holy Spirit to give us eyes that will truly perceive the presence of God in the face of Jesus. We need hearts that are soft and open to God. We don't want to become people who are being hardened by the repeated preaching and reading of Scripture. You know what? Just like the people of Israel in the desert and just like the crowd here, we are totally dependent on God's miraculous provision, aren't we? We have no resources of our own. We can't perform this miracle on ourselves. But Jesus is a Christ of miracles. And he is alive. He is risen. He's ascended to the right hand of God. And he reigns here in this place by his Holy Spirit. So if you long to know God, if you want to grow in your knowledge of God, pray that the Holy Spirit would work in your heart. You don't need more signs and wonders. You don't need more apologetic arguments and debates. You need the Holy Spirit himself to do a work in your heart. And we all need that continually as Christians, don't we? It's not just an issue with the Pharisees. It's an issue with the disciples as well. We don't want to be slow to understand and hardened of heart. So let's pray and ask God to continue to do that work in our hearts this afternoon, shall we? Father God, we thank you for your miraculous provision of bread. And we thank you most of all for the miraculous provision of the bread of life, Jesus, your son. We may only have one loaf in the boat, but that loaf is Christ himself, and he is all that we need. We confess to you, God, that we are here in weakness and total lack, in fact. And whatever our need is, whatever our hunger might be, we know that you have not only the resources to fill it, but plenty that goes far beyond the greatest need we have imaginable. Lord, unless we encounter you in miraculous power, unless your Holy Spirit works in our hearts, all this is for nothing. So we hold out our empty hands to you, not demanding a sign, but asking for your compassion. We know you are strong. We know you are loving. We know you are wise. Be here with your people, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.